0: We're going to be in Psalm 2 this morning, and if you would stand as we read it together. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, you are so holy and you have spoken to us in your word. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would make it clear to us today that you would make Jesus Christ exalted. Lord, I pray you would speak to me and that you would speak through me and that you would encourage your people, Lord, that they would be built up and encouraged and that Jesus Christ would be magnified and glorified. It's for his glory that we pray. Amen. The nations are raging today, are they not? They are. They are. As I did some research for this, I was looking at all the headlines and stuff, and it was almost overwhelming. I couldn't boil it down, but we all know that last Wednesday, 14 people were shot in San Bernardino, and a few weeks before that, 180 lost their lives in a series of attacks in Paris, and Mexico's in a massive drug war, South America is... Much of it is in a drug war and in an unrest. Syria is, is in unrest as well. Africa has conflicts all over it. And here, here in America, we live under a government that just this past summer gave approval to, to so-called same-sex marriage. And that since 1973 has murdered 57 million children who were in their mother's wombs. But this psalm, this psalm helps us today. This psalm answers for us today the questions, why? What is behind this? What is really going on here? And it also helps us answer, answer questions that come up like this. The New York Daily Times, a uh, small newspaper out of New York, had a, had an article called, the headline was, God Isn't Fixing This. And the whole article was to shame those who tweeted and other social media about our prayers are with the people in San Bernardino. They were shaming them for that. And so we have to have the answer. When they turn to you and they say, where is your God now? Where is he now? And this psalm helps us. This psalm answers that question. And this psalm shows us that it's nothing new. It started in the garden. It started... With sin, and then we see at Babel the first time that a bunch, all the men on the earth, bunched themselves together and said, Let's make a name for ourselves. And it carried all the way through up to the cross where it was shown in its pinnacle of putting the Messiah to death. And it's going to continue until Jesus returns and all the nations gather against him and he will slay them with a word. And he will make all things right in the end all things right. So what this psalm is really about, what today is really about is who is in charge, who is ruling, and the foolishness of rejecting God's authority. The absolute insanity, the foolishness of rejecting God's rule. So let's look at some background. The psalm breaks up really nicely. It breaks up into four parts. So if you look in your Bible, verses one to three We'll be together, and then there's probably a break in between verses four to six. And then another break, and then you have seven through nine, and then a break, and then 10 through 12. So it breaks up really nice. You've got these four, four sections, and the psalm is what's called a royal psalm. So the kings of David, the Davidic kings, would sing this at their coronation when they were getting crowned. They would sing this psalm. So it's a royal psalm. It was written by David, and we know that because Acts tells us. So it's also... David's companion to Psalm 1. So in Psalm 1, you've got the way of the righteous man and the way of the wicked man. And then in Psalm 2, the way of the righteous nation and the way of the wicked nations. So it's the companion to Psalm 1. It's a royal psalm, but it's more than that. It's a messianic psalm, and here's what that means. It's one of very few psalms where David is actually pointing forward to the Messiah that would come, the savior that would come, the ruling king that would come. And so in the psalm, you get the four scenes. The four scenes look at this. They look at one through three is the rebellion of the nations, the nations rebelling against God. The next three that we'll be looking at would be the absolute authority of God. What does God think of all this? What does Yahweh say about what is going on here? And then verses seven through nine, the anointed king steps forward and speaks. And then 10 through 12, the Holy Spirit through the psalmist Warns us. He Gives us a warning. So let's get right into it. It's a fun song. So one through three, the rebellion of the nations. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. David uses words and phrases that show us that it's not just right then that he's talking about, it's generally. Why do the nations continually rage? It's the picture of a pot that's boiling over on your stove. They're boiling and they're bubbling and it's bursting the surface. Why are they continually raging? And why are the peoples continually plotting in vain? He's mystified, why? Why are they rejecting God's authority? This is a war for authority. And what's the answer that he gives? Number one. They rage because they hate God's rule. Look at verse 3. This is what they're saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. When you look at Lord, right before that, it's all caps, right? L O R D caps. So Yahweh, the covenant name of God, that's what that stands for. So who are they raging against? Against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed, and they want to cast off their cords. They rage because they hate God's supreme rule. It's like this. It's like when you walk your child across the street and you hold their hand, right, so that they don't run out into traffic and get hit. But what does the kid do? They're trying to wrench their hand out of your hand, right? They, they, they don't understand They think that what you're trying to do is somehow steal their joy by not letting them run around. And all you know is in your brain that I don't want my little child to run out in the street and get smashed by a car. And the nations are just like these foolish children. They see God's commands, they see God's rule as if as if it were something oppressive. And they try to cast off the bonds. And what are we seeing in our culture? It doesn't get them freedom, it gets them slavery. It gets them slavery. So they rage against God's rule, and then the New Testament gives us further light on this. They don't just rage because they hate God's rule. They rage because there's a different spirit at work in them. Ephesians 2, it's describing Christians before they were saved, and it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, no? That is what makes you a Christian. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. And yet, what this shows us is that there is another spirit at work here. It is deeper than just that the nations are raging against God because they hate him. They rage because you're seeing the play out of Satan's rage against God. Satan's rage against Yahweh and against his Messiah. So they rage because they hate God's rule. They rage because the spirit of Satan is at work in them. And as an aside, number three, this hatred and rage is normal. It looks like in our day we might be moving more towards normal Christianity in our nation. And I say normal because the last 50, 60 years of general goodwill towards us is a massive anomaly in church history. And even geographically, if you look around the world, it is an anomaly. And I want us to be prepared, to be ready, so that, like we just heard about two weeks ago from from Pastor Mike, that we, like the apostles, would rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for the name That we would love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That we would love them and that we would not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. That's what Peter says. That we would not be surprised. So they rage because they hate God's rule and because there's a different spirit at work within them. Okay, scene number two. Now we move to God. What does God think of all this? What does God think of the shootings and the terrorism? And the laws that go completely against his, what does he think? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Another way to say that would be he mocks them, he ridicules them. God doesn't even get up out of his seat, he doesn't even stand up. If you gave all the nations 10,000 years to gather together and plot against him, he wouldn't even have to stand up. He has only to speak the word of his mouth, and they will fall. God is absolutely in control. What is God's response? Laughter the same way you would laugh at a group of first graders that got their squirt guns and tried to go take on the U.S. military. Come on. He laughed and he laughs because he's so in control. Number one, he knows all. You know when you click your computer, and if you have the Mac, you get the little pinwheel, and if you have the Dell, you get the little and it sits there, you click, and and then after a while, you get bored, and so you click it 20 times, and then your computer crashes, right? That is not what God is like. God has all knowledge at all times immediately. He doesn't have to go retrieve it. He knows eternity past, to eternity future, and everything in between immediately. His wisdom and his knowledge is so massively incomprehensible we can't even begin to fathom it. He knows every blade of grass, every thought that's gone through your heart, every hair that's growing on your head. He sees every snowflake that's fallen in the farthest reach of the Antarctic, and he's named them. I mean, what what kind of knowledge are we dealing with? Infinite, nothing escapes it, nothing has ever escaped it, nothing will. He knows everything. He knows everything. Not only does he know it all, he controls it all. Not a single bullet has left a single gun apart from his will. He controls it. Yes, he hates evil, but he controls it. He is in total and complete rule of the entire universe. Some of you have heard R.C. Sproul say there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. That's absolutely right, not a single atom. God says to the sea, you come this far and no further, and it comes that far. He says to the mountains, you go this high and they go that high, exactly. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing frazzles him or surprises him or slips his mind. Total control. He knows all, he controls all, and his rule is inescapable. You go to the deepest ocean, he still rules. You go to the highest peak of the highest mountain, he still rules. You go to the furthest reach of space in the farthest galaxy that we can find, he still rules. You go to heaven, he rules. You go to hell, he rules. The devil doesn't rule hell, God rules hell. He rules the visible, the invisible. His reign is supreme. It's supreme. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can say to, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. And so verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This supreme God has chosen a man to rule, a king to rule, a Messiah who will have his authority. And we're going to hear from that Messiah. What does he say? Verse 7. I first read through this. This didn't catch my eye, but I want you to catch something here. I will tell of the decree. We've been in third person the whole time. He sits on in the heavens. He will speak to them. He will terrify them. And now all of a sudden, I? So this is really important in our Bible study because, well, okay, so we you know that David wrote the psalm. So this could be David speaking. Does David, is David referring to I? I, David, will tell of the decree? Or If you've been a believer, you probably read this and think, gosh, that sounds like Jesus. So, an important note on Bible study, we often ask, what does this mean to me? And not to be too blunt, but that is a meaningless question. It doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means. What does it mean, period? What did it mean to the original author? What did David mean when he wrote it? That's important. What did David mean? So who is speaking? We've got to answer this question. And we could go way off. I don't want to go way off. I want to give you three three reasons why. I think this is the Messiah stepping forward and speaking. This is Jesus Christ stepping forward and speaking. And here's why. Number one: no king was ever promised the nations or the ends of the earth, nor to rule the nations with an iron rod. Look, look, look down one little bit. He says. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. No king was ever promised that, not even a Davidic king. But Jesus was. Revelation 2.27, Jesus is talking about Christians, about believers that one day says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father. And it's even more clear in Revelation 19, from his mouth, speaking of Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Reason number two, God doesn't ever instruct us to take refuge in human kings, but he does here. He doesn't ever tell us to take refuge from his wrath in any human, but again, if you look down, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That type of language is, is reserved for the Messiah, not for human kings. And then number three, I like this one. The writer of Hebrews interprets this as Jesus the Messiah. It's helpful when the Bible interprets itself. Hebrews 5 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's in quotes. It's a direct quote from Psalm two. And in Hebrews 1 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Also in quotes, it's a direct quote. The New Testament interprets this as Jesus the Messiah speaking. So what does he say? I will tell of the decree. The Lord Yahweh said to me, "You are my Son. Today I have begotten you." So now we get to interpretive issue number two. bells should be going off for you. The Father says to the Son, "I've begotten you." Does that strike any problems with anyone? I, I would hope so, because we believe that Jesus has existed eternally as God. He's part of the Trinity. So what's going on here? Well, again, the Bible interprets itself for us. Acts 13, it says, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Think resurrection. By raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, so it's a reference to the resurrection. And then Colossians 1.18 says, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So there's that language again, firstborn from the dead. Here's what he's saying. It's not begotten in terms of origin or in terms of creation like we would think of. No, this is, I have brought you forth from the grave. Because think about this, at the transfiguration, a few people saw Jesus. His disciples, they, they professed him as Messiah, but what was the public declaration that this is God's son who will rule? The resurrection. I have brought you forth out of the grave and displayed you as my king, who I have set in Zion. This is just a reference to the resurrection, and it's just a different word than than we use. It's a different connotation than how we use begotten. I have set you forward today, the day of the resurrection. What does he say? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus will receive the nations. He will receive, we're about to go into this series, the cradle, the cross, and the crown. And this baby in the cradle is the heir of the world, the one who will inherit the nations. And he did that partially on the cross. He purchased the people for himself by his own blood. And as those people are brought in, they offer praise to him from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he rules them But we don't yet see his outward rule over all the nations. That's in a coming day. Look, I will, future, you shall, future, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This baby in the cradle who went to the cross is coming back to be crowned. And what will that day be like? 2 Thessalonians 1 says that that day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he is revealed from heaven, it will be like this. He will be with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He will receive the nations and one day he will judge the nations. He will judge them. And he is coming. He could come before I finish this morning. So we've heard from the Father. We've heard from his Son, the King, the Messiah. Now we hear the Spirit warning us. The Spirit carried along the prophets as they spoke. This is the words of the Spirit coming through the psalm writer. It's a major break. Major break. Now, therefore, this is the turning point. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. This is the first of three couplets that he gives. Be wise, be warned. Literally, let yourself be instructed. Wise up. Stop being so hard headed. This is incredibly gracious. The Lord could have judged them then, right then. But he gives a warning. Our God is kind. Our God is kind. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And what are we to do? If we want to submit to this, if we want to take his warning, to heed his warning, what do we do? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't talk like that very much anymore. Serve with fear, rejoice, and tremble. But that's how God speaks. That's how the psalmist speaks. That's how our gatherings should be. Not trembling because he might fly off the handle at us. That is not our God. But fear because he is terrifying and his wrath is powerful. But we rejoice. If you would be wise, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. All this is is the idea of in the old days you would kiss the feet of a ruler that you were in submission to or the the, the ring, the signet ring. This is the idea of kissing the son in homage, in honor, in submission. That's this whole warning. Submit to his rule. Submit to the rule of God's Messiah. And that's what we said the whole point of the psalm was. The foolishness of rejecting God's authority kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him so I want to apply this to three types of people there are three we could cut you up in all sorts of ways divide the room in all kinds of ways but really there are three types of people in here there are Christians there are those of you who profess to be Christians but do not know the Lord and then there are those of you that that do not know the Lord, do not trust in this Messiah. I don't want anything to do with your Jesus. And so first, to Christians, to those of you who have submitted to the rule of this king, who have said, I have nothing good in myself. I haven't earned it. I haven't done anything to deserve it. But because of his goodness and his kindness and in his mercy, he has given me eternal life. To those of you, number one, keep killing rebellion in your own heart. Keep killing rebellion in your own heart. When God saves you, he overcomes our hard heart. He, over, he overrules our rebellion, and yet there's still remaining bastions of pieces of us that are fighting against him, right? Even in the smallest things. Keep waging war against the sin in your own heart and let his rule filter down into everything. In junior high, we talk about this and we do a silly analogy, but it's helpful. I wanna be able to give an answer to why I brush my teeth with a biblical principle. I don't wanna do it because I live in the first world and that's what we do here and it's the right thing to do, less dental bills. No, I wanna do it because maybe because I love my wife and I don't want her to have to smell stinky breath. And that's silly, but it helps us understand I want every, every ounce of my life to be governed and ruled by this God. I want my sleep patterns and my, what I do and what I say and what I think, and yes, even my hygiene to be governed by Jesus Christ and by his word. So keep killing rebellion in your own heart. Number two, trust in God's control and justice. Man, this applies today. Trust in God's control and trust as he rules from the heavens and nothing surprises him or is too difficult for him. He knows all, he rules all, and his rule is inescapable. Trust him. When they come to you and they say, Where is your God now? Just remember in your brain, they, they don't they don't know Second Peter that tells us he's the Lord of patience. He's being patient while his children are gathered in. He's being patient. And one day, one day there will be no injustice. One day every injustice will be settled, whether on the cross or in hell. There will be no injustice in the end. He is returning, and he will come to judge. And no one can say to him, what have you done? So trust in God's control and justice. Don't panic, trust. Trust in God. Number three, proclaim Jesus as king. Or don't do wimpy evangelism. It's so popular nowadays to do almost apologetic evangelism. And I don't mean the good apologetics. I mean, ah, sorry, but could, could, I, could I maybe tell you about Jesus? No, come, look, With gentleness, yes, with respect, yes, with love, always, but with urgency. I am an ambassador of the king, and this king gives you terms of surrender, and you must yield to him or face his judgment. Tell them, tell your coworkers, live a life that makes them see, I want to serve his master, because the one who is the servant of that master is the freest man on earth. Whoever his master is must be incredible. And then open your mouth and tell them. Tell them about the king. Proclaim Jesus as king. Jesus is not apologetic that he rules. Neither should we be. And then to those of you Christians who are believers but you're not assured... You're not, you're not sure of your salvation. His wrath and his justice seem so terrifying. I want you to look at verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How happy are all who take refuge in him. I don't want you to downplay what you think of his wrath because it is that great. But here's what you have to understand. Our God is perfect and he's perfectly balanced and he displays all of himself. And so however strong you think that wrath is, his grace is just as strong. Jonathan Edwards described it in old language as he is full of diverse excellencies. He is both infinitely powerful and he is meek and lowly. He is both all-knowing and yet he condescends and he speaks to us. He is kind and gracious. His steadfast love endures forever. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Go to him. He will not cast you out. He is a gracious and a kind and a loving and a good father. You may be terrified of his wrath, and I assure you there is no place to hide from his wrath except in him. Only God can protect you from the wrath of God. And yet if you take refuge in him, he will protect you. He will shelter you. There is no more wrath for you if you are a believer. It was paid for, all of it. That's why the cross was so important. In three hours, he swallowed eternal wrath on your behalf because he was an infinite man. And God... In one person. There is no more condemnation for you. How happy are those who take refuge in Him? And then, to those of you who are trusting in something else, trusting in yourself, trusting in a prayer you prayed, trusting in your goodness, I would ask you Is Jesus king of your life? Is He the king of your desires? Is he the king of your money, the king of your time? Does he rule your computer screen, your television screen? Does he rule in the clothing you wear? Is he the king of your life? This Lord that we come to, he is not an addition or an improvement or a cherry on top. He is not there to make your life comfortable. This king will not accept your terms. You come on his terms, and he offers you terms of surrender. And in his grace, he welcomes you if you would submit to him. And so I would ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? Imagine if you were in a city, medieval city, castle, you got your castle walls around you, and you came there because I'm safe in the city. And every time the king sends his decrees, Every time he sends his messengers, you shrug. Eh, not gonna read that. Eh, I don't need to listen to them. I'm in the city, I got, I got my protection. Isn't someone at some point going to come up to you and say, do you love the king? Or are you just here to have a nice, comfortable life? Surely someone's going to ask you that at some point in that scenario. So I ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love his word? Do you love the decrees that he sent to you? are you letting it filter down into all your life or are you the king of your life? And God just makes it a little bit better. The Bible knows no such thing as a Christian who is not ruled by Jesus. If he does not rule you, he is not your savior. And I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I am not talking about being perfect. But I'm talking about a growing desire for him. Not the stuff he gives, not the comfort, not a nice moral life, but him, a desire for him. And then to those of you who do not believe, I have an encouragement and I have a warning. My encouragement is this I want you also to look down at verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Stop running after the flimsy, fake, inconsequential pleasures that you think will satisfy you. They won't. There is only one source of true joy. There is only one fountain of eternal joy, and it is Jesus Christ. Stop looking at elsewhere for your satisfaction, for your joy. Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you hear that? Fullness. In the superlative, fullness of pleasures. Forevermore. There is true joy to be had. Stop rejecting it. Stop rejecting it. And then I also have a warning. I'm compelled to warn you because the Bible warns you. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. If you have an NASB, I think it translates it nicely. It says, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Here's the picture. The kindling is set. It's just waiting for the spark. The bow has the arrow on it and it is drawn and just waiting to be released. You do not know how much time is on the clock of your life. What will this Jesus be like when he comes back? Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. If you keep on rejecting this king, there is no hope. There is no hope. Nothing but wrath awaits. And this is not a game. This is not a game. He will come to judge. And when he judges and he casts into hell those who have fought against him, the angels will sing praises to his name because he has rid the earth of those things that are against his Messiah and against the Lord. And we all justly deserve that, if not for his grace. Run to him, go to him. He is merciful and gracious and loving and he will accept you if you only will submit to him. Give your life to this God, give your life to him. And So we saw the nations in their rebellion and their rage, saw the one seated in heaven who just laughs doesn't even get off his throne and then we saw his king, his messiah who stepped forward and he rules the nations and one day he will come again and he will crush all those who oppose him all knees will bow That word rod, you shall break them with a rod of iron. It is the exact same word as in Psalm 23 your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Exact same word. But in the shepherding context, that rod, protection, guidance, correction, love. In this context, it's a rod of destruction. And so which will you have? That is the question before you. If you do not trust in him, if you do not believe in him, if he is not the king of your life, which will you have? The rod of protection? Comfort? Love? Guidance? Or will you reject that and push it away and receive the rod of destruction? Oh, I wish that you would not do that. And then in the last stanza, we saw a warning to us. So the son, the father speaks, the son speaks, the spirit warns, submit to God's authority. It is foolishness to reject his authority. Submit to his Messiah, love his king and you will have joy forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, you've humbled us by your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. We didn't even deserve that. Thank you for raising up your son, your Messiah, Jesus. We pray that you would exalt him, exalt him in every area of our life. Humble us, Lord. Help us to submit to your king. We love you, Lord. You are so good and so kind and so strong. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.